All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Headlight in the Fog. We're your hosts, Akshay Thomas and Laura Kapleen. Today, we'd like to welcome two guests to the show. We have with us Neil Paloyan, an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics with the Division of Nephrology at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. And we have Casey Lamatina, assistant professor in the Department of Ophthalmology and Pediatrics at the Boston University School of Medicine and the director of the UVI's service for the Department of Ophthalmology at the Boston Medical Center. Neil, Casey, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So today we're going to be talking about tubular interstitial nephritis and uveitis, or it's a mouthful, or tinea for short. So not a ton that we know about this, not a huge number of large studies, but let's get into some of the basics. So Casey, if you're seeing a, a uveitis patient, what sort of ocular features may make you kind of raise your eyebrows and say, this could be tinea? So it's really interesting because our approach to tinea has kind of changed over over the years. And it used to be taught that this was just something that happened in young patients, usually adolescent or young female patients specifically, and that it was bilateral acute anterior uveitis. And so that was really the only consideration previously. But what we've learned over the last 5-10 years as more and more papers are coming out is that there is this really profound range of how, how patients may present. And so it can present with anterior uveitis, with intermediate uveitis, posterior uveitis, pan-uveitis. It really is kind of anything. There, there really can be a, a wide range of, of presentations. So really, at this stage and, and the age range, we also now know, is much wider than previously thought. There was a paper out of the Cleveland Clinic that showed this kind of bimodal range where while there was this sort of younger, younger group that got it, there was also a group of of patients 77 to 83 who also who also presented with it. And so now basically if I see a patient who has acute bilateral uveitis, tinea is in my differential. And that makes a lot of sense. And I, and I think I think when you think about it, especially in a younger patient, bilateral simultaneous onset anterior uveitis, there's not a huge range of things we can be thinking about. So that definitely raises some some bells at least for me for tinea. I think that that's a good point too, in that the OHSU study, when they looked kind of at a large cross-section of their patient population, when you kind of stratified out with the age demographics, as you got into those younger people that were maybe 20, I think it's 21 or 20 or younger, and you look at the proportion that a bilateral uveitis, I think there was a bilateral anterior uveitis, you see there's a huge increase in the proportion that actually has teen who has an underlying diagnosis. So I think this is something that's underdiagnosed in general in our uveitics. So I think in my own personal practice, yeah, particularly when I have younger adults coming in with a new onset bilateral uveitis, I definitely include Tinu. And I agree, it's, it's been something I've started to slowly increase in my diagnosis, etiologic testing for older patients, because it's probably, as we're coming to understand more about this disease, realizing that perhaps there is an under underdiagnosis of it, not just in the younger patient population. Yeah. And I think the one thing I always I always like to think about is um if they've had any preceding systemic symptoms. Casey, to what extent does that kind of affect your testing? Yeah. So this is actually something my co-fellow and I had talked about because I had the benefit of being at Northwestern at the same time as as Anjum Qureshi when he wrote his his Tinu paper. And so it's something where for older patients, I usually was thinking about, okay, if they have this preceding, preceding uh, viral prodrome, but we had talked about it since. And it's something where sometimes those prodromes, especially now in the time of COVID, where it's like everybody has something, it's harder. And because also we, we know with the timing of tinnitus, sometimes the, the systemic illness really does frankly precede the, the uveitic signs and, and the tubular interstitial nephritis precedes uveitis. But other times it's the reverse. And so 
that had changed. Our conversation basically changed my practice of, okay, if I have a bilateral acute uveitis in, in an adult patient, I need to keep this on my differential as well. So I'm testing more in adults as well. And I'm, we may be talking about this. I don't want to get jump ahead, but, but we're seeing um, more incidentally, we're, whether we're diagnosing it more because we're, we're looking for it more or whether, whether there is some relation between COVID and, and tinnitus remains to be seen. Uh, there's not enough data out there yet to know that, but certainly something that I'm, I'm considering a lot more now. So, so that being said, at least for the moment, our, our median age, quote unquote, for tinnitus is 15, and that may change as we increase our diagnostic testing. So we're very fortunate to have a pediatric nephrologist with us to shed some light on, on the other side of tinnitus. So Neil, if you see in your practice, what sort of things kind of raise suspicion for the possibility of tinnue? Yeah, so there's, I guess there's two main categories of, of when we see tinnue patients or even think about tinnue patients. So one of them is pretty easy, and that's because they're referred from you guys. So uh, like Laura mentioned, I mean, I think the ophthalmologists have been much more aggressive with looking for tinnue when they see a uveitis patient, which I think is super helpful because then they get sent to us, we can work them up. But then the other half of it are patients that present first with the interstitial nephritis. And this is, a, this is a much trickier diagnosis for us because interstitial nephritis by itself is a ne- kind of a nebulous, kind of a difficult to diagnose disease. And we don't really understand a whole lot about it. So patients can present with all sorts of different symptoms. Sometimes it's caught incidentally because they have labs drawn for routine monitoring for something else. Sometimes they have rash, sometimes they have fever, sometimes they have abdominal pain, sometimes they have flank pain, sometimes they have urinary symptoms. So the presenting findings are really super nonspecific. When you work them up further for whatever their initial cause was, most of the time people with interstitial nephritis will present with abnormal renal function. That's really the hallmark of when we start thinking about, could this be interstitial nephritis? So if they have an elevated BUN, elevated creatinine, especially in the setting of we, we're pretty comfortable that this is an acute change because there's a lot of kids walking out there with chronic kidney disease that are yet diagnosed. So if we think they have an acute decrease in kidney function and we don't have a better explanation of why they have low kidney function. So if a, if a child comes in very dehydrated and has poor kidney function, well, then that's pretty straightforward. We, we think that that's from volume depletion and dehydration. Or if a kid had some kind of a drug toxicity and has a low kidney function, we think, okay, this is probably, if it's a classic drug toxicity, then it's probably some other type of diagnosis. But if you have a child who just has elevated creatinine and has maybe some other systemic findings, we think about interstitial nephritis. But the really tricky part is in those patients, it's not an easy diagnosis to make. There are certain labs that we'll check that can help us kind of see if it's interstitial nephritis. So classically, we always used to check urine eosinophils on these patients because the interstitial nephritis is thought to be some type of an inflammatory allergic reaction. But over time, we've really kind of proven that that's not sensitive and not specific. So we still check that when we think about interstitial nephritis, but in reality, the data shows that it's not helpful. And so if we have a patient with interstitial, what we think is interstitial nephritis, and if we're concerned about how they're doing, and we really need to do a renal biopsy on these patients to, to cinch the diagnosis. That's the only way to actually diagnose this disease. A lot of the times we try not to do it because it's a relatively invasive procedure. If we think that the patient's getting better, if we think that the diagnosis is relatively secure, then a lot of the times we'll try to forego the biopsy 
because most patients with interstitial nephritis don't have tinu. Most patients with interstitial, with interstitial nephritis, we don't actually know for sure what caused them to develop interstitial nephritis, but most of the time it's acute and usually self-resolving. Sometimes we can identify a certain type of a drug with PPIs being by far the most common uh, cause of interstitial nephritis. So if we can identify that, yes, they just started on a PPI within the last few weeks, and now they're presenting with interstitial nephritis, well, then we just withdraw the drug. Most of the time, the lab's all normalized, and the kid goes on their way. For, for but, those of us that are not quite as the internal medicine doctor, anymore, PPI meaning proton pump inhibitor. Right. Thank you. Yeah. So proton pump inhibitors for, for gastric reflux. So if you've got a patient who uh, has gastric reflux and was just seen by the GI doctor and started on medication and then has lab findings consistent with decreasing kidney function, then we are, we're pretty suspicious that that's probably interstitial nephritis. We probably would just withdraw the agent, watch lab, and try not to biopsy the patient as long as their kidney function is not too low, that they're actually having problems from it. Every now and then we'll have a patient that has very severe uh, depression in kidney function, or we really don't know what the diagnosis is. Those kids will go on to have a biopsy. And again, that's where we can really confirm the diagnosis of interstitial nephritis. When we have a patient with interstitial nephritis that we are sure of, and we have no idea what caused it, I think this is the time when we start thinking about, well, could it be, could it be TINU? It's not always the first thing that jumps up in our mind. Um, again, because the majority of patients with interstitial nephritis will have a relatively benign, relatively transient course. But we do know that the kids with TINU can have other systemic findings like the eye disease, and they can usually be a little bit harder to treat. So I think we are also probably getting better in when we see a child who has interstitial nephritis, either strongly suspected or, or confirmatorily diagnosed, having you guys, having the ophthalmologist come by and see them rule out uveitis because we, we are also seeing actually more kids with, with tenue along, along with, with you guys. So we're getting better about, about looking for uveitis in these interstitial nephritis patients, although it still does make up a, a minority of all of the interstitial nephritis patients we see. Yeah. I mean, this is like, like this is like super helpful. I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to take it all in. So, so, you know, there's some, there's some quote unquote risk factors that we've seen for, for tenure, Casey. And I, I, I wonder if some of those, as Neil mentioned, are maybe risk factors for the interstitial nephritis portion of things, but maybe perhaps not for uveitis. So if we look at our risk factors in a lot of studies, some will say, you know, like, like, some sort of viral exposure. I feel like that's probably the boogeyman for lots of forms of uveitis, right? And then like Neil mentioned, things like NSAIDs and antibiotics, which perhaps don't cause uveitis, but they can cause interstitial nephritis. So are there any sort of risk factors that you like actually think may be legit or that you at least screen for when you're talking with a tenure patient? I'm actually going to redirect real quick to Neil because I have a question that, you know, sometimes if we have a, <laughs> a patient with uveitis that we're, there's posterior segment involvement, we may be starting them on oral steroids in addition to proton pump inhibitors. And so whether or not that's something that we should be thinking about uh, ahead of sort of sending them for, you know, if we're, if we're, this is in our differential and we're, we're needing to consider the interstitial nephritis and don't want to cloud the picture for our nephrology friends, is that something that we are, is, or we're still okay to do, <laughs> or should we, should we rethink that approach when, if we're considering continue on our differential? Yeah, no, thank you, Casey. That's a, that's an awesome question. I think without having a, any data to support this, but I think that it's probably a better idea if you're going to start them on prednisone to have them on some kind of gastric protection. 
the correlation between proton pump inhibitors and interstitial nephritis is not great. And anecdotally, I have seen lots of kids coming in on high-dose prednisone with various gastric ulcers and bleeding. So I, I think it's probably more important to give them gastric acid protection if you're going to put them on prednisone. And I think the percentage of kids who get put on PPIs, the overwhelming majority of them don't develop interstitial nephritis. So while it, theoretically it could be a, a confounder, I think that it's probably more important to put them on something. Now, could you get away with like a, an H2 blocker? So like a famotidine or another agent? I mean, if you can, maybe that would be ideal. But, but I think that it's probably more important to have them on something because the risk of clouding that picture while, while, while theoretical is, I think, awfully low. Okay. Thank you for that. Cause I just wanted to make sure we weren't going to, to make these diagnoses even more tricky because as we've talked about, sometimes it's, it's hard and, and thinking about it is the, is the first piece to get back to your question, Akshay. I think that, you know, the big, the big thing for me, again, it's hard, particularly in kids and IV pediatric ophthalmology as well. Every kid comes in has had something in the last six months. And that's why when I was talking to Dr. Qureshi about all of this, I was saying that all of my kids with bilat- acute bilateral anterior bi- acute bilateral uveitis, regardless of, of localization, are getting tested for this. But that previously my I kind of wanted some sort of something else with the adult patients in terms of a viral prodrome or, or other sort of generalized, generalized systemic symptoms. And that, that I moved away from that because after after kind of talking with him, there there some of these prodromes can be so minimally impactful they won't won't remember it. And so um, that's where my practice has changed in in terms of considering considering really any any bilateral acute uveitis. Uh, it's it's there. And so those are those are really the big the big things I think about. I think he brought up something interesting earlier, Casey, which was this this that a number of us have noticed that right around when the pandemic started with COVID, a lot of us seem to see a bump in TNU patients. And I agree. It's something that I think needs to be investigated more. It's, it's not been something that's been able to be well correlated though in, in our patient population. I mean, we've, I think we had five or six all within a couple month period, but we checked for COVID antibodies in a number of them. Actually, COVID tested a fair number of them. And, you know, we never found anything. And I, I didn't, I thought it was unusual, especially if we think about this, not just COVID necessarily, but this like, could there be a viral trigger question? And and in that time, everyone was isolating. We didn't have a lot of daycares open and, and schools open. And so I thought it was a really interesting thing to see. I, I know other groups have noticed it too. I guess, did you want to share your thoughts? And then maybe we can see if Niels had anything similar on, on the flip side. Yeah. So we certainly, I'm part of the Pediatric UDIs Committee, which is a subgroup of APOS, the American Academy of Pediatric, American Association rather of Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus. And as a group, we're, we're looking at this because it's, it feels like there, we A, have a lot of, a lot of data probably uh, uh, between the five to 10 centers that are, are participating, a ton of, a ton of cases just to share our sort of clinical findings in, in these patients. But that uh, there are anecdotal experiences that we've seen more in, in that time. And again, causation correlation is, is so hard to prove. And we're not going to be doing AC taps. These are all pediatric ophthalmologists. We're not going to be doing AC taps in these kids to, to actually uh, look at the aqueous and um, see like, is, is this COVID associated TINU or what? And so it's something that I think we'll find some interesting data as, as our, our collaborators and, and co-investigators internationally are all probably seeing this as well. I know it's been a, a subject of our our AUS listserv. So I, I think that we'll likely 
see some data, whether we're ever going to really prove causation unless we have someone who's actually taking taking fluid to, to link those two things will, will be the question. And so again, it's it's a risk benefit that I'm not I'm not sure we'll have that data anytime soon. How about from your end, Neil? Any any changes in how often you guys feel like the interstitial nephritis diagnosis has been coming up as we've been in the pandemic? Yeah. So I don't so the interesting thing is I I don't think we've seen a lot more patients with with just all around acute interstitial nephritis, but I do feel like we've seen more patients with tinu. Fortunately, we've got a, a really great rheumatolo- pediatric rheumatologist here at the University of Wisconsin, uh, Dr. Cole, who I know, Laura, you work with mm-hmm. as well, who is really up to date with, with all of the COVID workup and how to interpret all of the um, laboratory evaluation for post-COVID syndrome. And we haven't really been able to make a clear correlation with uh, any kind of COVID-related disease pattern, but, but we are certainly seeing more tenue in the last couple of years than we historically have seen, despite the fact that overall, our just global acute interstitial nephritis patients don't seem to be really all that more, much more prominent at all. So we briefly, briefly went over some of our diagnostic testing, and this will be a great place for us to tell you what sort of diagnostic testing we get, and then Neil telling us what we should be getting. So <laughs> without, without further ado, so, so Casey, obviously when you're seeing a pediatric uveitis patient, obviously you're not just testing for tenure, you're testing for a bunch of other things, but what sort of um, tenure-specific tests do you tend to get on these patients? Yeah, so usually the big things that I'm looking at are kidney function with uh, with a... And, and a lot of time I'll just do... I, I like to limit blood draws in kids as much as possible, so I'll just do a CMP in the event that they end up needing INT. So rather than just doing mm-hmm. BUN and creatinine, I'll, I'll just do the the um, complete metabolic panel in case I need to start methotrexate at some point down the line on a child. And so in addition to that, if, if it's this bilateral acute uveitis, they're, they're going to get a urine beta-2 microglobulin is usually my my main screening screening test that I'm doing for, for tenure. I typically also get a UA. Oh, yes. And a UA. Thank you, Laura. Because I'm looking for the yep. nephritic profile, essentially. Trying to trying to honor my pediatric nephrology <laughs> colleagues a little bit there, and sometimes I'll actually get inflammatory markers too. Yeah, I tend to I not get those as much because they I feel like that they're not really as specific, and so it's not necessarily kind of going to help me in in my differential diagnosis necessarily as much, especially for for the kids that I you know I've seen a lot of pediatric uveitis. It's it's not going to distinguish some of the other causes of of JA or or other things that may cause an, an anterior or or intermediate, et cetera, uveitis. So it's, it's, I do use that less, but, um, but certainly think it's reasonable to, to do. Yeah. I usually don't use this much as a diagnostic tool as, as if it's elevated, I like to see it go down okay. as we treat along with like improvement in the creatinine. But I guess let's find out what Neil thinks yeah. we should do. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I totally agree. I mean, the very first thing to do is to get a BMP or a CMP, really either one. I think, you know, CMP doesn't really draw any more blood and it's, only a few dollars more. So totally agree. If you reach for a CMP, you're going to be covered. The most important thing is to look at that BUN and, and creatinine. And then of course, in kids, if you don't take care of children a lot, you know, you do have to know what to make of that creatinine number because creatinine kind of gives us two different pieces of information. So one, it tells us how much muscle mass the child has. So as children go from babies to adults, the creatinine is going to go up. And so people that only ter- take care of adults, you know, there's a set a set number that's normal for creatinine because most adults have about the same muscle mass. But because children's muscle mass is growing year after year, you do have to know how to 
take that creatinine and translate that into something useful, which is what we're looking for, is the elimination of creatinine or what the, what the kidney function is. And so we actually have specific formulas. The one that's the easiest to use is called the, the Schwartz equation, named after a nephrologist, Dr. Schwartz. And it takes the creatinine, it, you input the height, and it gives you what the estimated glomerular filtration rate is, or the GFR, which is really what we want to know. So it's important to check those labs, but then it's also important to know what to do with them. Because if you remember from like an internal medicine rotation, in an adult lab, the most labs will automatically calculate the GFR for you, for an adult. But for children, because it's different, labs don't give you that number. So you have to know when you see that creatinine, you know, is that an expected number or is that too, is that too high for that given child? So you do need to know uh, how to translate that number into, into a kidney function number. And that's really probably the most important thing to do on your metabolic panel. It is, it is important to also get your electrolytes with the, with the renal function. Um, it's pretty atypical in interstitial nephritis, but you can have electrolyte abnormalities like hyperkalemia or significant metabolic acidosis if the renal function is poor enough. For whatever reason, in interstitial nephritis, including in TINU, we just don't typically see that. Despite pretty bad kidney function, we usually see preservation of electrolytes, preservation of acid-base balance, unlike in other diseases. But still, in really bad cases of interstitial nephritis or TINU, you can see electrolyte derangements and, and acid-base disturbances. So it's really important to get that, that basic or complete metabolic panel. Then I also agree, the next thing is to look in their urine. So getting a urinalysis and making sure that it's not more consistent with something like lupus or some other kind of uh, rheumatologic disease, because most patients with interstitial nephritis will have a totally normal urinalysis. So they will have no blood, no protein. The presence of, of a little bit of blood or protein doesn't exclude tinu or interstitial nephritis, but it's much, it's much less common. So the majority of, of TINU patients will have a completely bland, normal urine, but they often will have an elevated beta-2 microglobulin level, which is signifying that there's some type of tubular injury or tubular damage. And so that's what that beta-2 microglobulin level is looking at, is, is really trying, trying to tease out, has there been some kind of inflammation or irritation or, or, or injury specific to the renal tubules? And so those are really the most important labs to get in these patients. I would say that we usually get inflammatory markers, although they're usually not helpful. Um, <laughs> if they're high, like Casey said, they're very nonspecific. If they're normal, well, that certainly doesn't rule anything out. So for some reason we get them, but I would say we essentially never actually do anything with that information. Neil, can I ask a little bit? So, so just number one for our audience, we want to also make sure everyone realizes we're talking about urine beta to microglobulin levels. So oftentimes when you pull this up in your electronic medical record system, the default is the serum. So you do need to make sure that you're looking at urine levels. I think in a lot of our literature in, in uveitis, looking at, you know, predictive values of these things, we usually are just checking a straight, what is, is it an elevated urine beta to microglobulin level? But I've noticed and sometimes the notes I, I see from you guys, you're oftentimes looking at the ratio between the urine beta-2 microglobulin and the urine creatinine. And I was wondering if you could just maybe tell us a little more about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks, Laura. So the problem with looking at any type of measurement of any solute or anything that's dissolved in the urine is that it's, the concentration is going to fluctuate based on how concentrated the urine specimen is. So if you've got someone that drinks a ton of water and their urine is very dilute, well, that's going to dilute out any 
any factor that you're looking for. So including beta-2 microglobulin. So someone might be making a fair amount of beta-2 microglobulin, but because they, they drink so much water, they're at, you're actually not measuring that much of it in that specific sample because the sample is just so diluted. On the flip side, if someone is really dehydrated and they're not drinking much of any water and they're making a urine that's very, 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 very concentrated, well, there might be a teeny bit of, of beta-2 microglobulin in there naturally or normally that's not pathologic, but because the urine is so concentrated, you're actually picking up more. You're picking up more on the test just because the urine is, is so, the urine volume is so small and the urine concentration is so high. So the ideal way to do it is to try and normalize that number to how concentrated the urine is. And so that's where the urine creatinine comes in. And that's actually a common trick that we use when we measure all sorts of different markers in the urine. So if we're looking at urine sodium levels or urine protein levels, oftentimes we will take that number and then divide it by the urine creatinine and get a kind of a normalization to how concentrated the urine is. So in a TINU patient, most of the time, even if you just check the beta-2 microglobulin level, it probably will be elevated. But, but dividing it by the urine creatinine assures that one, that the elevation is, is a true elevation and not just because the urine is concentrated. And two, it makes sure that a low number, that the, the, the lab might say this is a normal number, but if the urine is so dilute, it actually might be too high. And so that's where the, the microglobulin to creatinine ratio is actually helpful in those circumstances where the urine's really concentrated or really dilute. I think that's something important for us because luckily for me where I am, it actually, I think, defaults with the lab when you order urine beta to microglobulin. It does the creatinine a lot of times, I think, for you in the urine. But if you have the right clinical scenario and your urine beta to microglobulin comes back normal, but you think it still could be Tino, I think that's actually an important thing to think about is looking at that ratio then to make sure we're not mm-hmm. missing something just because of, like you said, a dilute a urine specimen. I feel like I need to go yeah, back and look definitely. at all my patients' labs now um, because I was like, oh, their, their creatinine looks normal. Apparently, apparently... <laughs> I apparently could be abnormal for them. So again, the, I, I, that's kind of the point of this for us to kind of learn, learn from, learn from the experts. Just, just kind of one more, one more aspect about diagnostic testing, Casey. So at least in our, our textbooks, right? Like our BCSE textbooks, there's always a lot of like buzzwords and associations, and there's always this HLA association, you know, with TINU. I've, I've personally never never tested, you know, HLA typing in TINU while we might for like B27 or Birdshot. Any, any utility for checking a you know, patient for HLA subtyping? So it's funny you bring that up because this is something I talk with my residents about because they're, and I don't know if it's been updated in, in their BCSC, but at, there was a question at the end of uh, maybe deviatus uh, BCSC, uh, maybe pediatrics, I'm not sure, but that asked about like, what's the strongest association? And I think for most of us who do HLA, HLA typing, we would say the thing we think most, most correlates well is A29 and birdshot. And the, the answer was Tinu and, and I'm not going to get it right. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to say yeah, it's, it's like DRB star and all yeah. of, all of that. Star yeah. One. yeah. Star like zero one. Yeah. So to not confuse people listening, I won't, I won't miss. Neil probably knows exactly what it is and is laughing at us. And the fact that he doesn't know it indicates, right? Like, eh. <laughs> right. like this isn't how we're going to make our diagnosis. Right. And so it's, it's, these tests aren't, aren't cheap. We have to think about our utilization right. of, of medical resources and not be wasteful in that. And it's not going to change our, our management in any way, shape, or form. So I, I don't do HLA testing in these, these patients. And I, I wonder sometimes if 
hearing that for, for our residents is going to be misleading to think that like, oh, they should be doing this if they're thinking about it. And so we talk about it in our, in our lectures of there is this association, you may get tested on it because it's in your, it's in your book, but it's not something we routinely do clinically. Before we hop back to a little more meal biopsy, can you say, I just wanted to touch base really briefly because as, as we've been talking, we've, we've, we're starting to understand as ophthalmologists that there's more posterior segment manifestations mm-hmm. with TINU. What kind of triggers you to go into doing some posterior segment imaging in, in your patient population if you're thinking about TINU and, and what will you think about getting? Yeah, so it sort of depends on uh, largely on, on my clinical exam. A lot of times you'll see things on exam that will trigger you. So you'll see a nerve edema probably being the most commonly associated posterior segment finding. And so if I see things like that, then I'm prompted. Usually if I see, if I see nerve edema, if I see macular edema, then, then I'm doing a fluorescein angiogram. Obviously in children, that's not always the easiest thing. So we, we do employ a lot of fluores, oral fluorescein for our kids, which takes a bit longer, but it's, it's less traumatizing for our, for our young children. And our old, old children as well. And, and I've even had an adult where we had to do oral fluorescein because she would pass out at the, at the sight of a needle. And so it's something where, where, again, I think that it's probably the thing I use most is wide field imaging because there's often posterior leakage, uh, you know, per- peripheral posterior leakage. Even if there's not a lot of uh, macular edema, there may be that posterior leakage. So I, that's probably the, the tool in addition to, to OCT that I use the most. There was a study that showed these subclinical lesions on ICG. I don't routinely do ICG in, in any of these patients. Again, usually if I, my suspicion is there would be other things that I would be treating that I'm not necessarily, it's not necessarily something I would be following ICG for. And again, with children, with our testing, I'm, I'm a little bit more picky about what I'm going to do and how often I'm going to do things to, to try to do the, the kind of fewest tests possible that that enable me to treat the patient appropriately so so that they're not getting repeat testing more than necessary and more invasive testing than is necessary to diagnose and and follow their their treatment course. I think that's pretty typical for me as well, you actually. Yeah, I, I think that sounds right. I, I'd say I, I can't think of a single child that I've got on whom I've gotten an ICG. I think floor scenes, like you said, you know, just from a retina standpoint, I think we have a decent amount of data that just with wide field imaging, we're picking up things that we didn't have, we didn't know before, right? So, I mean, you can see mild peripheral vascular leakage on all forms of anterior uveitis and even like post-cataract CME. So, so yeah, what is clinically relevant, you know, it's probably still the biggest question, what, what do we actually need to treat? And it still is probably just the CME and the anterior uveitis as with, as with most things. So, Neil, let's go back to you a little bit and touch base about renal biopsies, because I think this is actually oftentimes one of the hardest decisions, right, for for us when we're faced with one of these patients is, you know, should they be getting a renal biopsy? You know, in our literature, we have at least one paper that that out there that shows, you know, with a elevated beta-2 microglobulin and an elevated serum creatinine, you know, they kind of looked at a retrospective cohort and, and saw that, you know, the positive predictive value for TNU when the kids did go on and get a biopsy was pretty high in that setting. And so I think oftentimes from our standpoint, we're fine, it's fairly okay just treating, and we'll, and we'll talk about treatment in a minute. But, you know, what are the scenarios where, where, where we feel like we need to move into that renal biopsy standpoint? And, and then could you maybe just briefly give us a little bit of an overview of like risk benefits of that process and kind of what you guys are looking for then on the... Um, pathology results? Yeah, absolutely. So I think from our standpoint, uh, the role of biopsy is a, is a little bit more clear when the patient presents with, you know, first with renal dysfunction, because those are the, those are the times when interstitial nephritis is on the differential diagnosis, but it's, it's not, is nowhere near a slam dunk because interstitial nephritis of any flavor is, is really almost a diagnosis of exclusion. So if we 
if we take a good history, if we do our physical exam, look at our labs, and we can't figure out why someone has renal dysfunction, then then yeah, biopsy is one of the next tool, tools in our toolbox. And so for any any case of of acute decreased kidney function, like we're always thinking, at what point do we do a do we do a biopsy? And of course, that's a little bit subjective, depending on how difficult the procedure would be in any given in any given kid. And so the the big risks of the procedure are is that one, patients really, at least children, cannot be awake during the during the procedure. They have to lay still enough that we can get our biopsy needle, which depending on how big they are, is going to go, you know, probably 10 to 10 to 20 centimeters through their subcutaneous tissues and their muscles of their back. So we have to get into the flank, into the retroperitoneal space. And so they can't be moving during this procedure, which is, you know, admittedly going to be pretty painful. So they have to be sedated. So depending on what your sedation doctors, anesthesia doctors are in your institution, this can be really challenging. Some centers, it's a little bit, a little bit easier, but it's always going to be a risk to sedate any kid, especially if they've got airway issues or if they've got um, other systemic comorbidities that make the sedation procedure uh, riskier, like if they're obese, which, you know, unfortunately we're seeing more and more obese children. So the first part is the sedation. The second part is that you are putting a needle into their back and you're, you're poking one of the most vascular, if not the most vascular organ in the whole body. And so bleeding is actually pretty expected after biopsy. Now, most of the time we can control the bleeding with just local pressure um, over the biopsy site. Rarely we'll actually have significant bleeding that happens at the time of the biopsy. Um, Occasionally, we actually have to give a patient a transfusion of blood because of bleeding. And very rarely, I think maybe I've seen this one time, we actually need to get interventional radiology involved to go in and locally stop the, the source of bleeding. That does not happen very frequently, but it is, a, it is a risk. Because of the risk of bleeding, even after the procedure is done, kind of as a clot is forming in the, in the kidney where you've taken the sample, we have the patient. Uh, monitored either in the kind of outpatient unit or sometimes in the inpatient unit for six to 24 hours uh, to make sure that they don't have bleeding. And then when they go home, they actually have to be on a modified activity restriction for about seven to 10 days. So they're not allowed to play sports. They're not allowed to participate in gym class. Uh, They're not allowed to do any heavy exercising or heavy lifting for about 10 days because of the, the risk of kind of dislodging that clot that's in the kidney and then having bleeding just gushing out of that site. So doing the procedure does come with some significant limitations for the procedure itself and then afterwards. And then the other consideration is that we're taking a needle from the skin surface and driving it pretty far underneath the skin. And so if there's any bacteria that you were to pick up, you would be driving it straight through all these subcutaneous tissues and you'd you'd be introducing bacteria right into the the cortex of the kidney, which of course uh, would would set you up for a pretty devastating infection. So, so fortunately, uh, because the procedure is done sterile, we really don't have issues with that. But it is a concern that we have to that we have to worry about. And so, those are the biggest risks of doing the biopsy. Most biopsies do go relatively well and are, are relatively uneventful. But you know, if we don't need to do one, we don't do one. So, in those patients, uh, if we've gotten to that point where we don't know what's going on and we need to we need to figure it out, we'll we'll go for a biopsy. When the patients come from you guys, most of the time when they've already had a diagnosis of uveitis, 
and maybe some abnormal renal labs, I think that's where it gets trickier. Because Laura, like you said, we're probably going to treat them anyway. We're going to be monitoring their, their labs nonetheless. So the role of biopsy, I think there is not, not as clear. And I think we've actually gotten away from doing them because the diagnosis is probably a little bit more straightforward. Well, that's good though, in a way. So if we manage to find something, we can almost spare these patients maybe than having to have a more invasive procedure. So yeah, I think definitely I'm glad that we can help whenever there's a question if they need to see if they've got some uveitis. So send them over. (laughs) I mean, of course, obviously the the purpose for us, just like Laura said, I think there are times when we're like, yeah, it's probably, it's probably tenue. I, I think part of, at least with some of the nephrologists I've worked with, part of the reason that we're so wanting to kind of nail the diagnosis is because we wonder how it's going to impact our, our approach for treatment, right? So, so I mean, Casey, let's, we, we said that there's a perhaps a bimodal distribution, but just for simplicity, you know, if you have a child that comes in with a bilateral anterior uveitis that you've, you decide is tenue, what is your kind of initial approach to, to treatment? Yeah, so it sort of depends on, right, I think it's the sort of same algorithm we follow with everything is it depends on on the clinical presentation. So if it's just if it's just anterior uveitis, I'm going to start topical steroids, and then we're going to be getting, we're going to be doing any systemic treatment in conjunction with pediatric nephrology. In terms of treating uveitis in children, I'm not comfortable managing my own sort of immunomodulatory medications and things like that. And so where I usually would be getting nephrology involved at that stage, but it's also something where if there's any site-threatening complications at presentation, we're going to be starting oral steroids as well. And so it's figuring sort of that out and, and also the timing. If they've already had this diagnosis of interstitial nephritis, then okay, great. Um, they've already probably been on some sort of treatment. They may already be on IMT. And then it's a matter of figuring out what the, the long-term course of that is. Because as I think we've all experienced, a lot of our patients, the the renal disease resolves before the, the uveitis resolves. And so while, while our, our wonderful nephrology colleagues may be the ones who kind of started the, this course of treatment, we end up kind of taking the helm on deciding when, when we're going to be able to, to sort of wean off of these treatments because the uveitis may still be active even after the renal disease is not. But for, for my pediatric patients, and honestly, it, when, whenever I have somebody who has a systemic disease, I'm managing really closely with with the the team involved, so rheumatology or nephrology in this case, and so because I'm going to be monitoring the eyes, but but usually I'm wanting I want them to be on board monitoring the renal disease, and so a lot of the decisions are really made in, in conjunction. Sort of once once we have decided, okay, well we're doing oral steroids and and doing this acutely, but is are we going to need to transition to to something more chronically, and then we we collaborate on that to make sure we're uh, happy with our our treatment plan. Neil, what type of tapers are we talking about from a renal standpoint if we do have to go to systemic corticosteroids? So say let's let's say this is a teenage patient that's predominantly an anterior uveitis patient. So we don't necessarily need the systemic steroids because of posterior segment uveitis. You know, we could manage that topically. But they do have elevated creatinine and, and evidence of interstitial nephritis, you know, elevated urine beta tube glycoglobulin. Like, where do you want to start with a dosing and then how how long? Yeah. So for us, if I'm thinking about it from the interstitial nephritis standpoint, you know, usually we'll treat with um, one mg per kilo of prednisone up to like 60 milligrams a day of prednisone. That's kind of a typical for anyone with interstitial nephritis. With, if we really think that it's a just general acute interstitial nephritis, so if we think that they maybe took some kind of a medication, like they got a dose of antibiotics that triggered the, the process, usually we wean the prednisone very fast. If it's tenue, usually we're a little bit slower with our taper. And I think the literature says to wean it over three to six months or so. If the patient's doing really well, and especially if they're having 
side effects of the prednisone. I am often a little bit more aggressive with the wean than a six-month course, but it is definitely measured in months. So at least a couple months uh, would be the wean. So not not nearly as as fast as we would do in interstitial nephritis. That's um, that's definitely the case. Gotcha. Now now if again I, in in my limited review of like renal literature, at least like Casey said, you know typically the eyes tend to be kind of the more chronic issue. Are there situations in which it becomes like a chronic renal issue where you end up needing like systemic immunosuppression outside of uh, glucocorticoids? So I think. In my experience, for sure, I've seen that the kidney disease is usually pretty easy to treat. And that goes along with, again, all the forms of interstitial nephritis. So if you've got interstitial nephritis from any, from any underlying cause, usually prednisone just melts it away really, really quickly. I, don't, I actually don't know what the literature says, but in my, in my own experience, I've had, I think, one patient who that did not apply to. And so I've, I've had one, one patient that had really significant kidney disease on initial presentation, actually much worse than the eye disease. And she's been very difficult to get under control, even with, um, even with prednisone and other prednisone sparing agents. But she is an outlier, but they do exist. Sorry. And, and this is just, again, more for, more for our information. You know, for us, when we're monitoring our ocular inflammation, we're just visualizing, right? So are you monitoring these patients with, again, serial labs, serial urines, just kind of seeing how they're trending? Yep, exactly. And so it's sometimes tricky to know exactly what's going on in the kidney in the patients with mild kidney involvement because we're not doing serial biopsies on them. That would actually show you exactly what's happening, but we don't do that. And so a lot of the patients with TINU, actually, like Casey mentioned, their kidney labs normalize pretty, pretty quickly. And so you don't know exactly what's going on, but the assumption is that they're doing good enough from a kidney standpoint. You know, this patient that I'm describing, she unfortunately has had you know, persistent elevation in her uh, B1 and creatinine. She's had persistent elevation of her urine beta two microglobulin levels, and so she's been she's been clear on the labs that, that she's not in. I guess you'd call it remission uh, from the interstitial nephritis. So let's talk a little bit about the situations where we do need to move into a steroid sparing agent. And I do think oftentimes this is driven by recurrent uveitis as as prednisone or topical steroids are tapered, and, and the inability to to achieve remission with without ongoing steroid steroid usage. I've found in my collaboration with, with both Neil as, and well as um, our pediatric rheumatologist here that this is one of the patient populations where sometimes we don't reach for what was my typical pediatric uveitis first-line anti-metabolite, which is methotrexate. And, and I've had a lot more patients where we've tried, tried to start with mycophenolate. Has that been your experience, Casey? Yeah. So, And then we'll turn over to Neil. So yeah, we actually talked about this. Uh, we were talking about this with the pediatric uveitis committee that it does, you know, we, we have this algorithm in, in with Kara, kind of the, the pediatric rheumatology group sort of lays it out. And it's really like methotrexate is what you think about with kids. And it's, it's like very, really well tolerated. It's once a week, all these great benefits of it, but that we do, we use, we use mycophenolate. We have good success with mycophenolate in, in these patients. And so it's sort of the one I have a little, I, I gave a talk to some uh, pediatricians recently where I had a little asterisk on my, on my slide where I said methotrexate, because while that usually is what we think about as our first line agent, that's my experience as well, is that we, we typically reach for mycophenolate here. So Neil, what are your thoughts when we do need to reach for a steroid sparing agent in a, in a TNU patient? Is mycophenolate a first line agent that, that pediatric nephrology is usually pretty on board with? Yeah, it really is, Laura. We reach for that first and foremost every time if we have a patient that needs to be on a medication 
more chronically. Obviously, we don't want to keep them on prednisone for a long time. And if we're getting to that point, then mycophenolate is by far and away our first choice. I have managed patients that have been on methotrexate when they've got really significant eye disease. I feel comfortable with methotrexate if they have very minimal or no kidney involvement. Methotrexate's nephrotoxicity really is magnified if your kidney function is not normal. So I have co-managed patients on methotrexate. I, I don't love it. And mycophenolate is really our much preferred agent. I know people have also tried other immune suppressive agents like cyclosporin and tacrolimus. I think the uh, benefits are, are very mixed because as soon as you start going to those agents, you really start expanding the side effect profile. So mycophenolate is a drug that we're very familiar with because we use it for a, a lot of other conditions. The side effect profile is usually pr- is pretty good and pretty, pretty tolerable. And it, it seems to do pretty well uh, for what we can tell in, in managing uh, tinu, I mean, especially from the, the kidney side of it. And Casey, if you have someone that, that maybe mycophenolate is not successful or, or they can't tolerate it, what, where do you like to go after that as, as maybe a second choice for our listeners? Yeah. So I kind of follow our, our sort of traditional algorithm that I'm usually going to go to a TNF inhibitor um, afterwards. And in kids, it sort of depends. Usually I prefer if we can do adalimumab to do that just because it's at home, it's easy and Especially since they switch to the citrate-free uh, formulation, it's much better tolerated. But unfortunately, with our patient population at Boston Medical Center, we're a safety net hospital, and there's a lot of, of issues with compliance, and and that you know there's a, a ton of reasons for that. There's a lot of barriers to access for our patients, a lot of barriers to to understanding of some of the severity of the disease. So, and in um, those cases, a lot of times I'll actually do infliximab so that we know that they're actually getting the infusion versus. I'm wondering if it's that they're failing, failing adalimumab, you know, we'll have to be checking drug, drug levels much more frequently and to be ensure, you know, ensure that they're actually getting the medication as opposed to having a record that, yep, they came for all their infusions. And so that's usually my next line. And then how long, how long do you want to treat for? Yeah. So it's, this is, this is where, where, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the results. It's going to be for JAA, but for the, for the adjust trial that hopefully, hopefully we'll have um, some good data to support sort of what our tapering is. But I come from a background of training and pretty conservative tapering of these patients. And a lot of times with, with the uveitis, we've already, if we've gotten to the point where we're using IMT, once we started the IMT, my, my threshold is two years. You're going to be on this for two years and then, and then we'll wean you off of it. Um, and that's just because I, I trained under, under the wonderful Dr. Goldstein. And that was, that was her approach. Her, her rationale was she just had too many recurrences if she tried to taper at one year. So she just does two years. And that's the conversation I have when we're starting any of these medications is if it's mycophenolate, if it's, if it's a TNF inhibitor, you're going to be on this, you're going to need to be quiet on this for, for two years before we're going to taper you. So Neil, if we have a patient that we're managing with CELSEP for their anterior uveitis and we've ascertained that their renal disease was quiet or maybe you know quieted down early on with their steroids, do we need to continue monitoring the renal function? Is this something that recurs or once once it's kind of quieted down in the kidneys, it's unlikely to recur? So I think the the real answer to that question is we don't know. I think that the experience we've had is that most of the time once you've got the kidney disease quiet, and by the time that the eye disease is, is under enough control that you can wean down your uh, medications, I would say most of the time we're not too worried about recurrence of the kidney disease. Now, that doesn't mean it can't happen, and that is probably a time when you do want to be actively watching, 
especially if they had significant kidney involvement in the first place, it's definitely a time that you want to be monitoring labs as you wean them uh, to off of, of their medication. But the, the risk, I think, and the likelihood of them having a significant, uh, I guess, relapse of their kidney disease is fortunately seems to be pretty low. Now, obviously, this is a multidisciplinary disease, so most of us are needing an ophthalmologist involved in the care, a pediatric nephrologist, and I think for most of us also a pediatric rheumatologist. What what tips can you share for us to help communicate better with your, you know, your crew, the, the nephrology end of things? How how can we be more of a team player in, in the management of these patients? <laughs> so that's a that's a great question. And and as as I'm hearing you say that, I'm kind of thinking about how it's such a unique you guys are in such a unique world. And I feel like a little bit set apart from at least the rest of pediatrics because I have kind of baseline close relationships with all of my pediatric subspecialty colleagues, my pediatric surgical colleagues, because I interact with them so much all the time. And I feel like the ophthalmologists are in a little bit of a different uh, microcosm. And so that is a little bit of a barrier of communication because it just doesn't happen naturally. Laura, I've gotten to know you as we've co-managed some patients, but we didn't have that pre-existing relationship because you're not, you know, you're not living in, in the same uh, same sphere that that I am. So I think that we've done a pretty good job of it by just both of us being aggressive, both of us being, you know, making sure that we are sending us our messages or calling each other when we need to, and not kind of being afraid to reach out of our normal comfort zone. And so I think that's been the most important thing is that you know you have you and I have kind of established a good a good system of, of um, you know, messaging back and forth when we need to uh, talk about certain patients. And, and it is nice having the rheumatologist, who I, do, who I do think works maybe a little bit closer with you, to kind of be an intermediary with that as well. So I, I agree it's been a little bit of, of a barrier. It's not something that comes super natural because I don't see, I, I never see you guys. I never am actually working, you know, it's, it's kind of at the bedside or in the clinics with you. But I think that it is really important for both of us to kind of make sure that we are starting that communication just every time we're making a change or every time we need help to, to reach out. And fortunately, we have a nice system within our EMR to do that. But, but I think taking that extra step is, is really important. And I found it really been beneficial when I know maybe I've seen a patient, I'm a little concerned, maybe there is some early re- inflammation recurring, but maybe we decide, okay, well, we're going to let the mycophenolate work for another month or two before I make a decision. I found it really helpful reaching out in advance of that follow-up visit with, okay, so if there is still inflammation, what's our next step? So that when I have that patient in front of me, I can at least start laying the groundwork for that next agent, even if maybe maybe our pediatric rheumatologist is going to be the prescriber, or obviously I'm going to circle back to the team and make sure everyone's on board. But that I think has been really helpful, kind of being a little more proactive into, into some of these upcoming encounters so that the parents can kind of leave at least my visit with an understanding that there probably is going to be medication change. It's most likely going to be probably whatever, adalimumab most often for me as well, after mycophenolate. Um, Casey, what do you think has been some helpful trips for, for you in, in having to do this type of communication? Yeah, I agree. I think that when you're on, you're in the same hospital system and you're on the same EMR, it's really easy to just shoot a message at the end of every visit. And our pediatric rheumatologist and I constantly are just messaging back and forth. The trickier one for me is in our faculty practice in the South Shore is it used to be on an entirely different, it wasn't on Epic. And so there was like nobody who who communicated by a care tracker. And so basically I, my rule of thumb there is I, bas- I send an email or a text depending on the doc's preference. Cause I, I just asked, we, you know, what is the best way to, to talk to you? 
and made sure it's okay with all of, all of the patients that they don't mind us communicating that way. And then I'll message them immediately after I see the patient of, hey, this is what's going on with the eye. This is the plan. Any, you know, any thoughts on your end from this is my plan and any thoughts on your end for our, for our rheumatology colleagues down, down in the, in the South shore. So the, and then I also send my letter. So I, I, every, every time they get a copy of the letter, just in case, because sometimes it can be hard to like find the email or um, text message that about that particular patient. And so they should have a, they should get a copy of my, of my letter from that day as well. So I feel like that has built up actually really great relationships with, with those colleagues and, and has really made sure that we are always on the same page with our, our treatment plan. I think that is really important from our standpoint to make sure we're interpreting out all of our cell and flare and, and OCT or FA results into more of these concrete take-home messages for the care team. And that comes up as a constant theme, I think, as we go through these conversations with other services as, as ophthalmology's got its own unique nomenclature, just like we, we've learned about how we need to make sure we interpret this urine beta 2 in the context of the urine creatinine. There's a lot of what we use language-wise that other, others don't just naturally interpret. So I think that's the other important part is make a take-home message for the, for the yeah. team. Yeah, I mean, I want to chime in, you know, being, being not, not being part of a, a hospital system, being in private practice, oftentimes, you know, trying to get these children in, we, we face certain roadblocks, which are really just might be like the front desk of our pediatric nephrology office. We're like, well, our first new, new patient slot is, is four months from now. And we're like, um, that's, that's, that's really not going to work. And so... I think there's there's an additional layer to that in, in private practice where kind of in the front end, you'd have to really have to kind of make these relationships saying, hey, I don't have a patient right now, but there's going to be a time where I'm going to have a patient that I'm going to need to send you. Is there a way for me to kind of get in touch with you directly? Because oftentimes, whether it's rheumatology or nephrology or, or what have you, GI, oftentimes I, I can't get past our front desk or my staff can't get past our front desk. And, you know, I just I send a message or a call you know, the doctor and they're like, oh, yeah, I'll see him tomorrow or I'll see them. I mean, that means that's, I think that's what most of us would do, right? Kind of regardless of what our schedule shows, if someone says we need patient to be seen, we're all, we're all going to do that. So yeah, there's sometimes a little bit of just kind of pushing past the uh, bureaucracy to get the patient seen. Well, before we, we say our final goodbyes, right, just for the purists out there, we did look up the HLA association with, with Tino and it's HLA DRB1 asterisk 0102, or as actually shared with us, Take the longest one if you're taking a, a test on this. It'll probably be the right one. Well, on that note, we want to thank Neil and Casey for spending their Sunday with us. This has been super helpful, super informative as always. Thank you guys for having us. And we hope that you'll be able to join us again soon for another episode of Headlight in the Fog. Have a safe and enjoyable weekend. Bye.